From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. Welcome. I'm Ben Schockman. Thank you for joining us. On today's show, the newest addition to our WHQR news team, Maddie Holloway, takes a look at Juneteenth. The holiday celebrates the date when the last enslaved black Americans were finally freed, more than two years after the emancipation. Long celebrated in some communities, this holiday has only recently gained traction in many other parts of America, but now it is set to become a national holiday. Then, reporter Kelly Kenoyer takes stock of Wave Transit, the public transit system created in 2004 by merging systems from Wilmington and New Hanover County has struggled constantly for stable funding and a coherent vision. Now that's changing as a clear mission and more money both seem to be on the horizon. But first, a conversation with T.R. Nunley, the founder of the Wilmington Pride Facebook page. In the world of social media, it's sometimes easy to get distracted and even depressed by mean-spirited and bad-faith arguments and the overall miasma that many refer to as the, quote, garbage fire of the comment section. But the Wilmington Pride page has, for almost a decade, provided the opposite, a safe space and resources for the region's queer community, and not just during the month of June. All right, my guest now is T.R. Nunley. T.R., thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. So before we get into this, um, let's do uh, a little bit of background on you. Tell us about yourself. Uh, like you said, my name is uh, T.R. Nunley. T and R is just two letters. I've lived in the Wilmington area for about 25, 26 years. I am a transgender man, and I use he, him pronouns. So let's talk about the, the Pride Facebook page. Tell us a little bit about how this got started. So many years ago, uh, at least 10, uh, I was searching for a place to organize different events, and uh, Facebook uh, was an amazing platform to do that. Um, the Wilmington area, like I said, needed an inclusive online resource hub for the LGBT community. And so I set it up and uh, it seemed like overnight, like a thousand people added to the page. Um, and it's kind of morphed into not only advertising events, but if somebody needs uh, a roommate situation, they can go on the page. They need some resources, they can go to the page. Especially now, it's June, a lot of people want to know where to go for different Pride events. Um, yeah, so it's just sort of been an amazing way of uh, connecting. Yeah. So for our listeners who don't who who know that June is Pride Month but don't know why June is Pride Month, uh, can you give give those listeners a little bit of a primer? Okay. So um, a long time ago, <laughs> in the nineteen sixties, <laughs> there was lots of uh, protests and riots because um, people were being um, unfairly treated, arrested. Um, and brutalized for being uh, LGBT. And so there was an event that happened in June called the Stonewall Riots. And it was a, a group of people led by uh, black trans women that um, had enough of being brutalized. 
and stood up to um, the harassment of police officers. And this is in uh, New York City, right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And um, and because of that riot, you know, there were other riots that happened all over the United States, and um, it kind of was like the first stand, first you know, standing up for themselves. And from that came the birth of the LGBT community because I think it, you know, we knew that, you know, the LGBT um, community existed, but then you saw it. You saw that it, it actually exists and there are a lot of people that are a part of it. Um, yeah, so I think with that, you know, then they started to do annual events uh, to honor those folks that did that protest. And then there are other events that happened to happen because of June. For instance, um, marriage equality also happened in June of uh, 2014. It was shockingly recently. Well, the the one in North Carolina was 2014. Yeah. And then... Yeah, yeah, it was uh, 2014 in uh, North Carolina and then 2015 in the U.S. Supreme Court. Right. Yeah. For, yeah, federal. It's hard to keep up because they, you know, it's like it's always this, uh, a fight to get, you know, human rights. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, unfortunately, because the, you know, even though the Supreme Court moves slowly and changes slowly, it's it feels like it's never 100% locked in for good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the the Wilmington Pride Facebook page has been around for, I believe it's nine years, so coming up on 10 years. Tell me a little bit more about how you've seen it change over the last almost decade. Like I said, I you know created it to do events, and then it sort of muted into like a way to connect. But it's like, you know, people who are just traveling here for the weekend will add onto the page to see safe spaces to go. Um, so it's sort of been growing and growing, and now we're almost at 5,000 people on the page. And, you know, there are lots of different organizations in town um, that can, you know, put their events or um, advertise their business. Um, so it has become a hub in many respects for LGBT people, and not you know, and it's not only for the LGBT people, it's also for our allies to go on there to see how they can support us, which has been kind of awesome as well, because you can be on that page and not be out as an LGBT person and still get that information because there is such a large group of allies that are on that page. So, um, you know, a lot of times people will message me like I'm part of the LGBT community, but I'm not out. You know, how can I get some resources? And I'll say you can go on that page because, um, you know, at least one third of the people on that page are just allies. Yeah, that's uh, I fall into that category. I'm, you know, boringly cis and straight. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's nice to know that. I guess that we can, if we can give cover for people, uh, or if you know we can just you know be there to to help because you know sometimes maybe I have a spare room for example, you know then someone needs a room and 
maybe that's how that works. Yeah. Also, I just want to let everyone know that on June 25th through June 27th, we're holding the second annual Chalk Full of Pride event to spread inclusive joy. Um, there will be several chalking sites throughout Wilmington, and you can go to the Facebook page uh, for more details on that. And we'll have a we'll have a link to that Facebook page uh, on the site if people can't find it. Although it's on Facebook, it's pretty easy to find. Yeah, just Wilmington Pride. Well, that's great. Um, Tara Nunley, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you for having me. I really appreciate being here. Yeah. And happy Pride. And happy Pride. <laughs> All right. By the way, you can catch a lot more from T.R. Nunley on the upcoming Queer in the Cape Fear edition of our show Coastline with Rachel Lewis-Hilburn. This is the third in the series so far. Great series. I recommend you check it out. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Newsroom from WHQR Public Media. I'm Ben Shockman, and I'm joined now by Maddie Holloway, the newest addition to the WHQR Newsroom. Maddie, thanks for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. So you're new to our newsroom. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, Well, I grew up in North Carolina in Emerald Isle, and right now I'm a rising junior at Emerson College in Boston, which is a long drive away. Um, But I'm home for the summer. My family recently moved to Wilmington, and I'm excited. I love writing and reporting. This is really great. Well, we're happy to have you. Um, So you've been working on a a piece, which we'll hear in a few minutes, about the Juneteenth holiday. But before we get to that, tell me, what was your experience with this holiday before you started looking into it? Yeah, I mean, honestly, before last year, I didn't have much exposure to it. Where I grew up, there weren't committees or festivals or anything like that. I just heard heard it briefly talked about in the news from a few people. And then last year, of course, George Floyd's murder, Black Lives Matter movement coming in. And um, honestly, the Tulsa rally by Mr. Trump, um, it drew a lot of attention to it. And that's really when I started learning a lot about the holiday. Yeah, let's, I, I've heard this from more than one person. You know, it, it, it might sound odd to people that it was former President Donald Trump who helped popularize the holiday. <laughs> but how, how did that ha- how did that work? I mean, yeah. So Trump had a rally scheduled for Tulsa in June 19th last year, and people weren't a big fan. It seemed like, why would you have a Trump rally on Juneteenth where there was the Tulsa massacre? Some people considered it a nod to white supremacy. It it seemed weird. The timing was very strange. And eventually his team pushed it a day back because they got a lot of flack for it. Um, but I, I mean, it drew a lot of people's attention to Juneteenth, which I guess is a good thing in the end. <laughs> I suppose so. I mean, I think a lot of people learned both about Juneteenth and the Tulsa race massacre. Honestly, yeah. It drew a lot of attention to both. Um, <laughs> who knows? Who knows? Well, you know, more knowledge is better. True. Uh, and of course, you know, now we've seen, you know, in, as you point out in your piece, uh, states, counties, and even the federal government now considering Juneteenth to be a holiday. That's right. All right. Well, this is a great piece. I hope people enjoy it. Let's have a listen. For many Americans, the summer of 2020 changed their thinking on race and racial justice. I can't breathe. Please, I can't breathe. George Floyd's murder and the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement spurred new and often difficult conversations about systemic racism, white privilege, and police brutality. They are going to kill me. 
It was a summer of tragedy and loss, but also hope and progress. It was also the summer when America rediscovered Juneteenth. Juneteenth celebrates the day the last slaves were finally freed in the United States, June 19, 1865. Although the Emancipation Proclamation was signed in January of 1863, the news didn't reach the enslaved blacks in Galveston, Texas until over two years later. Juneteenth marks a day when every black American was finally granted freedom. When they heard the news of their freedom, the emancipated Texans celebrated. They danced, sang, ate, and they prayed. And those traditions have been passed down to the present. The Juneteenth Committee in Wilmington was formed in the 1990s and coordinates the week-long local festivities, including comedy jams, pageants, movie showings, and much more. Marsha Graham Ali is the committee chairwoman. It takes a lot. It takes a lot of reaching out to people, a lot of calls, a lot of texts, a lot of emails. I'm trying to put everything together to make sure that it comes together for, for food, for entertainment, for vending. Marsha and her husband moved to Wilmington in 2004. She had heard of Juneteenth before then, but had never celebrated it. When she was invited to be chair of the committee, she said yes. And now, 17 years later, she says the job is stressful, but well worth it. It's a lot of work. And even though you might see the finished project and you see it in a week, it takes months to do this. It, it doesn't just happen, you know. Fortunately, Marsha has help. The Juneteenth Committee works with the Upperman Center at UNCW, the Martin Luther King Center, the Cameron Art Center, and several others. The goal for Marsha and the committee is to balance education with fun events. It should include funds and games because once they became free, they started celebrating with picnics and uh, games and, you know, entertainment to um, just enjoy the time. But I think education is most important because, as I said earlier, a lot of people don't know about Juneteenth. The Juneteenth Committee also works to include young people and hosts a Miss Juneteenth pageant for girls between the ages of 12 and 18. The hope is to pass the traditions on to the next generation. It's, it's very important for young girls because I don't know how many black girls themselves get to be in a pageant. And not only are they learning, but they're participating and dis they're displaying themselves, who they are, what they represent, what their talent is. It's a beautiful thing. It really is. Even though Juneteenth has been celebrated for decades, the holiday hasn't been well known. It isn't taught in most schools or seen as a holiday outside of the black community. And while the holiday is a celebration of black pride, it also invokes painful memories. Sometimes when we look back on American history, we see things that are tough to look at. Even Wilmington, a place known for its historic charm, holds a very dark history. That's another part of our history that people don't like to talk about. You know, the 1898 riot, a massacre, coup d'etat, whatever you want to call it. Um, it was a really dark time in our history. Marcia is referring to the 1898 massacre carried out by white supremacists in Wilmington. An unknown number of African Americans were killed. She says it changed Wilmington forever. 
it's really important to know where and what has happened in our history, in our town, in our city, uh, in our state. The past can be hard to think about, but Marcia says we have to look back in order to move forward. Um, I try to focus on what we believe and hope and pray will be, um, equality for everyone. And I just feel like trying to celebrate Juneteenth, you're not just recognizing what happened, that we were slaves, but we're trying to move forward uh, to get to where we want and need to be, where we should be, where we should have been years ago, because a lot of people don't want to face what happened. But not talking about the painful parts of history, she says, won't make them go away. It's everybody, not just blacks, but whites, um, all all uh, nationalities, about a dark period in our time. But we're trying to move forward. We're trying to move away from that. And we're not celebrating slavery. We're celebrating the freedom of it and trying to achieve the things in life that we want and desire and should have. Last Monday, the new Hanover County Board of Commissioners voted unanimously to adopt the Juneteenth Proclamation. Bernice Sanders Johnson represented the Commission of African American History, Heritage, and Culture to read the proclamation. Now, therefore, be it proclaimed by the new Hanover County Board of Commissioners that June 19, 2021, be recognized as Juneteenth in New Hanover County and urge all citizens to become more aware of the significance of this celebration in the African-American history and in the culture of our nation and county. Some counties in North Carolina have made Juneteenth a paid holiday, like Thanksgiving or Memorial Day, holidays celebrated by everyone. We're not trying to discriminate against anybody. We want everyone everyone who wants to come and participate. We don't care what color you are. We don't have any racism in there. Um, Just come and see the things that we're doing. And if you want to work with us on a committee, it would be great, you know. We're asking that you come and enjoy the activities and learn about Juneteenth. And if it's possible, come back year after year after year, you know. So we, we would love to have them. Deborah Dix Maxwell, president of the New Hanover County NAACP, agrees. I think it's a holiday for everyone because it's part of what is the fabric of this country called America. Deborah and Marsha share the same hope that as more people celebrate Juneteenth, it will become not just a black holiday, but an American one. Well, Maddie Holloway, that is great work. Uh, Thank you so much, and welcome to the newsroom. Thank you. It's a pleasure. You're listening to WHQR. Please stay with us. I moved to Wilmington about four months ago to join the WHQR news team as a reporter and weekend host. I grew up in Oregon and went to University of Oregon in Eugene. And while Eugene and Wilmington are similar, both are mid-sized college towns along a river, they're also, in one respect, very different. 
When I headed off to college at University of Oregon in 2012, I arrived with no car. The dorms were on campus and I could basically walk or bike anywhere I needed to. I stayed car free throughout my four years there, even when I moved off campus for housing. I saved thousands of dollars in maintenance, gas, and insurance by relying on cycling paths and public transportation, the Lane Transit District bus system, known as LTD. I didn't come to Eugene, Oregon as a public transit fan, but I left as one. One year, I lived a mere block away from the Emerald Express, better known as MX. It's a bus rapid transit system that skims past the university, then heads downtown. I never needed to check the schedule to make sure I'd get places on time. A bus came every 15 minutes, 10 minutes during peak hours. It costs $3.50 for an all-day pass to ride LTD. A day pass here in Wilmington is $5 and doesn't get you nearly as many places nearly as quickly. So how did Eugene get such a great system to work in the United States, a country which so highly values the personal vehicle? And what would it take to make something like that happen here? You really have to get people to understand the value of public transportation. That's Mark Johnson, the assistant general manager of Eugene's transit system. He said a good bus service provides value even to those who don't ride it. From an environmental perspective, from an economic perspective, certainly from an equity perspective, public transit provides value to all those things, right? I mean, you, you put 50 people on a bus, you've just taken 50 cars off the road. The system in Eugene is highly valued by local residents. Rick Levine, a former colleague of mine, retired from journalism to become a bus driver there. It's kind of cool being a bus driver. <laughs> it's, you know, especially when somebody pulls a cord and gets off the bus and says, thanks, driver. It's like, totally makes my day. Rick has spent most of his life in transit-focused towns out west, like Seattle and Eugene. He's a public transportation advocate and says that's common in his town. A lot of people, it's their only form of transportation for whatever reason whether it's ecological, by choice, or they happen to be having in tough circumstances, or their kids, or whatever, you know, it's like, I feel that that responsibility all the time when I'm letting people on and off the bus. I'm like, this might be their only way of getting around. As a new driver in the system, Rick has driven pretty much every route. He's even driven the pride of the system, the Emerald Express, known as the MX. You're in dedicated lanes, in a corridor. It's like a subway on wheels. It's a whole different beast than, than the bus. Um, but it's a 60-foot it's a bendy bus, you know, an articulated bus. And um, it's more locomotive. It's got bays like a subway. And you go there and you open up and you let the people on and you keep moving. Rick loves buses. And I get it. I like them too. When I rode the bus all the time in Seattle, it's like... There's a certain comfort getting onto a bus, knowing you're safe, knowing you're going, you know, you're going to get where you're going. You can crack a book, you know, or kick back and look out the window. It's like it, it gives me kind of a warm feeling to be participating in that, if that makes sense. I've got a young cousin in Portland who has the transit maps memorized there. If I ask her to meet me someplace, she'll tell me the exact set of buses and light rail lines she'll use to get there, and how long it'll take. Like a growing number of 18-year-olds, she's never expressed much interest in owning a car. You don't need one in a town with good transit. And that means more than buses. In Eugene, bike lanes and paths connect to bus routes so you can bring your bike inside the MX and ride across town with it, then hop out to ride the last mile to your destination. The MX is what's called a BRT system. 
BRT stands for Bus Rapid Transit, and what that means is a system with dedicated lanes, signal priority, raised platforms, and other features that make it feel more like a light rail system. You wait on a covered platform, watching the minutes tick down for the next bus, usually coming in four to six minutes. You see it coming from three stops away, and that great green centipede hisses to a stop right next to you. The doors open up, and you can walk your bike into the indoor bike rack and sit at the nearby seat. My boyfriend Christian still lives back in Oregon. I asked him to describe a typical MX station. Let's see, there's the trash can, there's some benches. Um, this one actually has a small plaque with a short little poem on it, uh, arranged around some art. Uh, the edge of the platform, like where the bus comes, is raised bumps so that, you know, you can feel that's where the edge of the um, platform is if you're like hard of sight. Um, and then it has little white painted lines to show you where the bus doors will even line up. It's basically like as close as you could get to like an outdoor subway station, but like really nice. I rode the MX to get to nearby Springfield or downtown Eugene if I wanted to get dinner there. It was the best choice to get downtown during busy events like the Saturday market. Riding the bus was a lot faster than spending 10 minutes looking for a place to park. Or I'd take the MX to get to class. During passing times, the bus was packed to the gills with students, standing room only. That bus is so fast I hardly ever had time to crack a book before getting to my destination. But other routes give you a lot more time to listen to a podcast or chat with some lonely person who really, really wants to tell you about their upcoming surgery. Here's Rick again. Like a good transportation system seems to elevate a place culturally and economically and socially. Absolutely. It, it's good to get a bunch of different people together on transportation who might not have any other reason to like be like participate in this melting pot where like classes and races and different people from all different walks of life are like kind of sharing the same space. Man, I miss it. Waves buses are clean and well appointed, but I don't take them as much now that I live in North Carolina. The fare is really expensive and it's way faster to bike or drive than to wait for a bus to arrive. I might take it to the beach to avoid the exorbitant parking fees in Carolina Beach, but since it only comes once every three hours, it's really not that flexible. Before I moved to Wilmington, I went to grad school in Columbia, Missouri, and the design of the Columbia system, the routes and the service levels, were also similar to our WAVE system. But both systems seem to lack the philosophical and financial commitment that makes the system in Eugene so successful and appealing. It's ultimately a question for cities to answer. Is public transportation a defining urban asset or simply a civic obligation? When we lived in Columbia, Christian worked as a bus driver. The buses in that town were never full. And for some riders, it would take an hour and a half to get to a destination three miles from where they started. The system was underinvested, and buses ran only once every 45 minutes. The only people on those buses were those who had no other choice. For residents, it's hard to see much value in a system that doesn't provide much value. And that's what too often happens in a town that doesn't care about transit. City bus service basically existed to check a box to make the city of Columbia a full-service city. This is the usual scenario when you have a lot of small uh, cities in the U.S. In order to get funding matching of the federal government to do their budget and to do capital development projects, they need to qualify as a full-service city. One of the things that qualifies you as a full-service city is having public transportation. Here's Rick again talking about the buses in Eugene. I've been worried that like eventually people are going to be like, we don't need mass transit. I've got a car. 
you know, and if you don't have a car, that's your problem. Maybe you should work harder. And it's just like, oh, my God, mass transit is like essential to the American experience. And it's like I, I have that fear. We've watched other things slowly be dismantled as far as like taxpayer funded municipal civic services. It's an essential part of any city. I can't imagine not having it. It's part of the social fabric. In Oregon, Rick has little to fear. The local system, the LTD, is popular, successful, and largely funded by a local payroll tax, thanks to some moves in the Oregon legislature back in the 70s. That local funding matters. Federal grants are determined by local investments. Here's LTD's Mark Johnson again. You know, there's always a match required for federal and, you know, usually it's an 80-20 match. So when LTD decided to expand its bus rapid transit line to West Eugene, the $100 million project received $80 million in funding from the federal government. LTD now spends 30% of its operating budget on the BRT line, but the MX also attracts 40% of the passengers in the system. Before that expansion was built, some in the area protested the new line. Once the lines went in, though, the grumbling stopped. Yeah, uh, there was a study that came out last year that actually tracked the property value along uh, BRT corridors or rail corridors, and property long transit corridors increased in value at a faster rate than other properties. And so what you see is affordable housing being built, being built along corridors. You see hotels being built along corridors. You see um, you know, apartments and condos being built along corridors. You see businesses who need employees built along corridors. So it's been pretty significant, really. Those who initially protested the MX expansion for fear of homeless people coming to West Eugene got a lot quieter once their property values went up, Johnson said. Overall, we're well supported and people see value in, in what we do. And dedicated funding is the key uh, to having successful transit. And so as I travel around, you can kind of see places where it's like, oh, we're always struggling for funding. We just you know, never have quite enough. And that's problematic. You really can't plan if you don't have a stable source of funding. And that's the problem Wilmington and New Hanover County officials are trying to solve. Politicians are looking at raising $12 million a year with a quarter cent sales tax aimed at public transit. Exactly how that $12 million will be spent is still up in the air, but less than half may actually go to WAVE. WAVE Executive Director Marie Parker says that any amount of stable and consistent funding will help. But what's on offer is not nearly enough to transform the system or to develop the coveted BRT system some politicians yearn for. It seems we're not yet at the place where politicians and residents see the value of public transportation. Coming up next on the newsroom, an in-depth look at what the existing transit system is like in Wilmington and what BRT could do for the region. Plus, a conversation on the proposed quarter-cent sales tax for transportation and how that annual pot of $12 million will get split. I'm Kelly Knoyer for WHQR. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. We're continuing our look at public transit in Wilmington and New Hanover County. Coming up, WHQR's Kelly Kinoyer helps us break down big funding changes on the horizon. But first, let's catch up with Kelly's recent deep dive into WAVE. 
Howard Gardner drives the 301 bus for Wave Transit. It's a seven-mile round trip from the Monkey Junction Walmart to Pleasure Island and back, with service running every three hours. Gardner has worked for Wave for nearly two decades. Yeah, when I started in like 2004, the buses were crowded. And you have more buses running, but they didn't go out far. They were in a small little circle. He's from New York and used to drive the bus there too. He said the traffic in Wilmington doesn't compare to NYC, but that's changing. This system is growing. Not quite set up for that, but it's, I love it here. It's, 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 it's like a day off working here compared to that. But it's getting there though. The traffic's decreasing daily. Yeah, so I don't know if the infrastructure is set up for what's coming. I don't know. I can't see it. Passengers took a total of 51,000 trips in March of this year, according to the latest wave statistics. And with an average fare of just under a dollar, it's not possible for riders to fully cover the cost of fuel, wages, and other expenses. It costs most riders $2 a trip to ride the bus. It's half that for retirees and the disabled and free for UNCW students. All told, system passenger revenues for WAVE totaled $738,000 last year. It was half that during the most recent financial year, thanks to the pandemic driving away passengers. But fares represent only 8% of WAVE's operating costs of $9 million. Wilmington's transit system, like that of all cities, needs to be subsidized by local government. In New York, for example, subway and bus fares cover only 14% of system operation costs. In San Francisco, it's 16%. In Raleigh, under 14%. But to Gardner, transit doesn't have to be a moneymaker. I mean, it's, it's another way of, of getting around. Everybody doesn't have cars. Everybody doesn't have license. It's another, you know, another way. Yeah, I've been doing it for years. Yeah, I believe in it. Yeah. To him, it's a matter of creating a service that actually works for the community. Experts say that kind of high-caliber service is defined by three qualities, reliable, frequent, and comfortable. But a service like that costs money. And right now, Wave's system is small, runs infrequently, is limited on weekends, and doesn't run later than 8 p.m. Its annual budget was just $8 million in 2020, compared to more than $10 million in much smaller Asheville. And last year, the city and county put in just $2 million of that combined, the vast majority coming from Wilmington. The source and size of the local subsidy for WAVE have never been officially defined. Since WAVE became regional in 2004, it's never had a consistent, dependable source of revenue. Here's County Commissioner Rob Zappel. You know, the funding right out the chute was, you know, well, we'll give a little. And the city said, well, we'll give a lot. And uh, it never got balanced out. Every year, Wilmington and New Hanover County decide how much financial support they're going to provide. As operating costs have increased, that's created political tensions, particularly with the county. Zappel says the history of somewhat irresponsible finances at WAVE led to some bad blood. One commissioner at the time, Woody White, decided to take the transit system on. So he got his votes together. In that case, it was Julia and Pat Kusek and him. And they did away with the WAVE board. The county commission had enough after WAVE asked for last-minute funding one too many times. For Commissioner Julia Olson-Bozeman, the last straw was when WAVE spent its emergency fund without telling the county about it. They came to us as commissioners. When I was a commissioner, said, we spent all the money. We didn't tell you. Give us some more. I'm like, what? And they did it twice. I was like, if my child, my 10-year-old would have done that, I would have taken his iPad away. If you would have asked me the same thing, I'm like, you can't. We said no. 
it, it just didn't make sense to me. So we need a new leadership for, for me to have faith in giving Wave more money. The Wave board was largely replaced with elected officials and county staff, and plans were quickly laid to cut the system services significantly. The county cut funding, and the previous director, Albert Eby, was ousted last summer during contract negotiations. And late last year, the new WAVE board, now entirely comprised of city and county staff and officials, voted to reduce services and cut routes. Those cuts were scheduled for this summer, and writers dreaded the change. But Commissioners Woody White and Pat Kuzik decided not to run again. Instead, two new Republicans came in, Deb Hayes and Bill Rivenbark. Neither had a grudge against WAVE, and things started to change behind the scenes. At a joint meeting of the city council and the county commission in April, Chair Julia Olson Bozeman announced a surprising change of heart. But I know the fun- funding commitments by the county and the city are not enough to fund the type of system we need and want. So while WAVE develops the best system for our community, the county and city must work together to determine a dedicated funding source to ensure the new system is achievable and viable well into the future. Olson Bozeman said the original choice to cut WAVE came out of her utter lack of faith in the leadership of the organization. But with the hiring of a new executive director, Marie Parker, things have changed. It's a service that we need. I think it needs to be run better, and I'm very excited that um, Ms. Parker is over there now. And behind the scenes, Parker has been whispering in public officials' ears about the beauty and importance of public transportation. Since I've been here, I've tried to make it a point to meet with everyone and, and try to tell them my vision coming into Wilmington. Wilmington's growing. Uh, we need to establish this huge network. And those meetings have been convincing, Olson Bozeman says. With her vision, you know, we've had a, some really frank conversations and she's told me what is wrong with her system and that, you know, you, you can't expect to have a great system if it's not adequately funded. Parker believes a growing city needs good public transportation systems to function. Buses, trains, and paratransit, transportation for those with disabilities, get the residents where they need to go, safely, cheaply, and without adding much traffic or pollution. I think we need to be growing at the same pace, or at least attempting to grow at the same pace as the city, so that we're not burdened with traffic and congestion and failing roads five, ten years from now. To Parker, a robust transit system is what makes a modern city function. That's what advocates say. The more people riding buses, taking bikes, or walking, the less problems with traffic the city will have. A lot of locals don't have the exposure to a high-functioning system like that, but that doesn't mean it isn't possible here, Parker says. So the ideal, I guess it's kind of far-fetched right now. It's not something that's really uh, realistic for maybe a city of this size, but it can be. Her passion appears to be infectious. Half a year after WAVE hired Parker, Olson Bozeman canceled the cuts to WAVE with a unanimous county commission vote. And the city and county may now bring a quarter-cent sales tax to voters to fund public transit. It would raise $12 million a year for WAVE and other transportation projects, and Parker has big plans for what that money could do. On a granular level, you're talking about taking a route that currently runs at an hour and just making it a 30-minute route. You're basically doubling all the service that you're putting out. In addition to that, we have pockets all over New Hanover County that have never had transit or that are in need of transit potentially, um, where we've had a lot of growth that has happened in suburban areas that would benefit from a commuter route. There are two key elements that she says bring new people to the bus, frequency and speed. But what do current wave riders and staff think about these possibilities? At the new Laura Paget bus depot downtown, 
Half a dozen riders mill around on a windy May morning, waiting to make transfers or get on their first bus for the day. It's a cross-section of Wilmingtonians, everyone from restaurant and construction workers to students and retirees. Erica Frazier hops on the 201 route to head to work at the McDonald's on Carolina Beach Road. The bus is clean, she says, and not too crowded. She shares the vehicle with just three or four others. The system works pretty well for her, unless she's working weekends. Saturday and Sunday, you can't get a bus till 9, so that leaves me walking to work. She said it's a 30 or 40 minute walk on weekends, and on weekdays too, if she misses the one bus that comes an hour. So twice an hour will probably be better. It costs most riders $2 a trip to ride the bus. It's half that for retirees and the disabled, and free for UNCW students. For those who take the bus to and from work each day, the commute costs $20 to $25 a week. Two riders heading downtown were surprised to find out that WAVE won't drop any routes this summer. Although the county voted to delay service cuts, signs were still up in many buses noting the now-canceled route changes. They, uh, they're keeping all the same routes. They were going to change They were going to change it this summer, but they're actually going to keep it all for now. Good, good. And they might, increase, they might increase the frequency instead of cutting it. That's okay. awesome, yeah. yeah. Okay, that's so the information. They, but for writer Stephen Lilly, even the current routes aren't adequate. He lives out near Castle Hayne, and his area has no bus service. I would say it's probably five-mile walk or something like that. It's a good little hike, yeah. That's a lot of time out of his day. They should just include all of that. I wish they would. He's also excited by the prospect of longer hours for bus services. Just the other night, oh, God, I spent $100 on Uber this week already. Yeah, I hate, yeah, if, if, if the bus was longer hours, that would be much helpful. Marie Parker said that kind of coverage could be key in attracting more riders. Frequency and speed are two of the biggest factors in, in the success of a transportation system. You need to be competitive to somebody taking their car. Parker has floated an interesting solution, bus rapid transit, the gold standard of bus service known for its speed, frequency, and specialized loading platforms. John Talmadge, the executive director of Bike Durham and a lecturer at UNC Chapel Hill, said BRT feels quite different from the stereotypical city bus. Uh, when the high-quality investments are made, it uh, feels like a typical light rail system. Talmadge said BRT at the highest level of investment comes with level loading docks, an innovation useful for those with mobility issues, and it's often ticketless to avoid wasting time with passengers slowly loading onto the bus. In cities like Richmond and Alexandria in Virginia, the buses have a dedicated right-of-way and come every 10 minutes during peak hours. You don't really have to know a schedule and arrange your trip around the schedule of the service. It's reliable. It's always there. And it's always there when it's done right at night and on the weekends as well as the middle of the day. Those systems exist in cities across the U.S., from Oregon to Texas to Ohio, and one will soon be coming to North Carolina. Voters in Raleigh approved funding that will develop four fully functional BRT lines by 2030. Such a system is hard for a lot of wave passengers to imagine. Nothing like it currently exists in North Carolina, to be fair. But picture it, a fast, separated bus lane that comes every 10 minutes. It could serve tourists as well as commuters and run late at night to prevent DUIs and serve the bar crowd. Perhaps you missed the bus by a few minutes, delayed chatting with a neighbor. Well, you can wait on the bus platform for the next one to come, in as long as it takes to order an Uber.
Howard Gardner, a Wave bus driver, experienced it in New York City and thinks there are plenty of routes that could benefit from BRT. Carolina Beach Road, for starters. I drove that bus and that route picked up a lot. He also wants more frequency on some routes that only come a few times a day. Route 301 to Pleasure Island runs every three hours. That means a rider who's just running errands will have to wait around Carolina Beach for hours before they can go home. Gardner wants better for his riders and figures tourists would benefit too. Summertime, it's going to have a separate shuttle and make the frequency every hour. And he wants to serve more of the community to help out riders like Lily and Castle Hain. Porter's Neck and Brunswick County are both opportunities for growth, he says. Because people that come here, they look and they see, they've been to other cities and they see their transit system. And you're always going to see that. Mm -hmm. When they get here and they look at this one, they, uh, you know, they, they kind of rate the town on what they see. Gardner is a true believer in public transit. To him, it's a defining feature of a city. He dreams of the day a light rail service comes to Wilmington, with bus service across the river to bring his family to visit. But the dream of BRT is at least 10 years away for Wilmington. That $12 million from the recently proposed quarter-cent sales tax, elected officials are now saying less than half of that will go to WAVE. That means it will take more time for WAVE to buy new buses and increase frequency or expand routes. Still, those who work at WAVE have the imagination for a world-class transit system. The question is, do politicians and do the voters? Waiting for the bus, where is the bus? The bus is late. Waiting for the bus in the rain, in the rain, when the bus come, where the bus set. If you're just joining us, you're listening to The Newsroom. I'm WHQR News Director Ben Schockman, and I'm here with Kelly Kinoyer. Kelly, we just heard your recent reporting on WAVE, but this is a constantly evolving story. So tell us a little bit about what's changed in the last week or two. Yeah, so there have been a lot of ad hoc committees created to address these issues. Yes, quite a few. Uh, We've had at least two since I've been here, which is only three months, so that's pretty impressive. Um, But one of the main things that we found out is that they have set allocations for how much of the money is going to go from this quarter-cent sales tax into various buckets. And the bucket for the bus is only 45% of the total tax. So it's looking like $5.6 million in the first year. Currently, from local sources, WAVE is only getting $1.8 million, so it's a little bit better. But I think they were expecting to get pretty much the full 12. So it is a lot lower than they expected. It's not even half. The rest of the places it's going to go are bike and pedestrian paths, which will get 39% of the tax, and then the rail realignment project, which is getting 16%, $2 million the first year. And we got to put a pin in that because there's a lot to get into there, but we don't have time now. But just that's a big stay tuned on that. Yeah, that's a that's a big story. You went to the larger joint meeting between the city council and the county commission. I wanted to know, are they going to keep it with these percentages? So it's unclear. You know, during the meeting, uh, Marie Parker asked if they wanted her to put together a budget based on these current numbers or what she called the best budget. And Rob Zappel, uh, Commissioner Rob Zappel said, you know, this is kind of where we are right now with the funding. But Commissioner Jonathan Barfield said, well, no, hold on. You know, let's see what you could do if you had, say, $12 million a year. So she's actually going to put together both. And so in early August, we're going to see two budgets. We're going to see a uh, $65 million over 10-year budget and then probably something much more expansive. Interesting. We also heard a lot from politicians about the importance of the bike lanes for selling this. Can you tell me about that? You know, it's coming on the on the heels of a tax increase or an effective tax increase and a very tough year for basically everyone everywhere because of COVID-19. And they were very, you know, they were very cognizant of the fact that this is a, an ask, you know, of voters, this quarter cent. 
uh, sales tax increase. And well, I mean, here's Mayor Bill Sappho. And in particular, I would say the three area beaches have shared some concerns that number one, they don't particularly use the bus service that much. And a lot of them already have bike path projects on their beaches currently. In addition to that, you have some people in the outlying areas and I would say the more rural parts of the county that don't see public transportation as a as a thing for them. And he was pretty clear that in addition to being a plan to fund wave, uh, this is also something that has to get sold to people. I guess we'll see in August what will happen with this budget. It's really hard to say. I mean, I could see it going either direction with them continuing this heavy emphasis on the bike paths or not. I also wonder where those bike paths are going to be. Are they going to be where the population centers are or near the bus lines? Or are they going to be where the political donors are? That's a very good question. And to get that answer, we'll have to watch yet another ad hoc committee, which has been which has been formed uh, to both kind of work out these details and also to take care of PR. I mean, the, this ad hoc committee is going to be in charge of selling this to the people. I do love a good ad hoc committee. I'm not going to lie. I know you do. Well, uh, <laughs> Kelly Kinoyer, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. All right. Well, that's about all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. I want to give my thanks to our guest this week, T.R. Nunley, as well as WHQR's own Maddie Holloway and Kelly Kinoyer. Big thanks to our production and engineering team, Doc Jardin, Ken Campbell, and Andrew Craig. If you missed part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org. And if you're listening on Friday, you can catch a rebroadcast this Sunday at 1 p.m., followed by Coastline. You can also now find our show as a podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher, and I promise, one of these days, Google Play. And if you subscribe on those services, uh, you can catch the podcast the day it goes live on the web. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schockman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom. Newsroom.